This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is brought to you by B&H Publishing, presenting The Storm-Tossed Family by Russell Moore, a new book about how the cross reshapes the home. Learn more at www.stormtossedfamily.com. This creation is really, really good. And what we learn from that is that when everything and everyone submits to the word of the king, it's really good. When everything and everyone submits to the authority and the word of this king, it's really, really good. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon... What Genesis 1 is all about was preached by Gary McQuinn at Park Church in Denver, Colorado on January the 14th, 2018. The text is Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 25. Listen now to Gary McQuinn on what Genesis 1 is all about. I want to start with something that might seem like totally obvious, uh, potentially the most obvious thing that there could be. That's that you're here. Like, you're here right now, right? I mean, like, that's, we're good there. So far, so good. Um, you're here, but I don't just mean here. I mean, like, you, you exist. But you're here this morning, and you're in this room, and your lungs are breathing in oxygen and pushing out CO2, and your heart's beating, and your eyes and your ears and your senses are processing, like, ridiculous amounts of information and making sense of those in your brain and interpreting your reality. Uh, some of you, you've got coffee, and you're like sipping on that coffee, and these beans that were harvested thousands of miles away and roasted down the street are like kind of doing something to you as like hot water is poured over them. It's like giving you energy to kind of stay awake so far. You're doing great. You're here, right? The sun this morning was just kind of like blazing on us. This star that's like close enough to like warm your body and it can like burn you if you get out in it too long for too much time. Like it's shooting photons at you and like doing something to you now, like helping you see, like you're here. And it's not just you. There are people all around us, right? There's neighbors. They, they might be sleeping in today or getting brunch or getting ready to have friends over. Uh, there are animals all around us. Birds are migrating, right? Bears are hibernating. Like things are happening and we're here in the midst of all of it trying to make sense of it. And the question I want to ask you this morning that I think is one of the most fundamental questions that we can ask ourselves as human beings is why? Like, why? Why are we here? Why do we have existence? Why do we care about friendship and people? And why do we come to things? And why do we drink coffee? And why do we engage in work? And why? Why are we here? This is a question that's about your worldview. Right? Like, what, what shapes the way you look at the world? What shapes the way you think about beauty and brokenness and friendship and body and personality and marriage and children? What shapes the way you think about those things? It, the way you think about them, your lens has been shaped and is being shaped even now. Your worldview, or the lens through which you process and engage in reality, is being shaped, and it has been shaped. And our prayer... And our hope in this series through Genesis is that God would do some work on our worldview. 
That, that he would begin through his word to reframe, to reform, to transform the way we look at the world, the way we think about God, the way we think about authority, the way we think about friendship and sexuality and culture and food, and the way we think about marriage and the way we think about work and the way we think about everything in this life that we have. We want God's word to transform us. And Genesis was written for that reality. Genesis was written to shape the worldview of the people of God, to give them an understanding of where they've come from, where beauty comes from, where brokenness comes from, and what the point of it all is. Genesis was written for this purpose. And our goal is pretty radical. Um, Our goal is not just to kind of inform your mind on what Genesis says about reality. Our goal is that God would do something to you. Like, yikes, back off. Said God, not me. Like, just God would do something to your heart. Something that would lead you to joy and life and flourishing. And something that would give him glory. And so that's our prayer through this series and this book. And and as we're being shaped right now, like your worldview is being shaped. Your purpose in life, your understanding of it, it's, it's been shaped. Maybe by your parents, maybe by your rebellion against your parents or your friends or society. Or all the, all the stories that you scroll through every day, they're, they're shaping you. And God's story is intended to shape you. And so we begin God's story where it begins, which is very appropriate. It begins in the beginning. In the beginning, Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God. Before you existed, before I existed, before there was a sun that could shoot photons at you, before there were moons, before there were stars, before there were planets, before there was an earth to stand on or mountains or rivers, before there was love and friendship and marriage and sexuality, before there were animals swarming in the sky and in the sea and and covering the face of the earth and creeping and crawling everywhere, before those things existed, There was God, eternal, self-existent, existing in Father, Son, and Spirit. And this God is, according to Genesis 1-1, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And this God is not just the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the upholder. He is the judge. He is the lover. He is the helper. He's the definer of righteousness and goodness and evil and wickedness. He he is the giver of mercy and grace. And he is the one who holds everything together. He is before all and behind all and above all and over all. He is God. And the story begins with him. And there is nothing, there is nothing more important in your life and the way you look at the world than the way you think about God. This is what A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he, in his deep heart, conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. It shapes the way you view everything. And so we start our series with God. And as we work through this series, we're going to see Genesis giving us a picture of who God is, what he's like, why he's designed the world the way he has, and what it means to be his people in this world. We'll take the first 11 chapters, which are represented in this banner over here, and look at what we call the primeval history of humanity. 
the early stories from Genesis 1 through 11 about God's creation of the world, His creation of humanity to bear His image, about sin and about grace and about righteousness and judgment and salvation and how it shapes the way we think about our life here. And then we'll take the next chapters of Genesis from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through 50 and we'll look at what we call patriarchal history of the world which is the history of God's covenant with His people as God intercedes and intervenes in human history to redeem a people for His name. And our prayer is that this would shape the way we think about life. Uh, but as we press into Genesis 1, I want to just um, kind of address something right out of the gates. For some of you, and I don't know that it's many of you necessarily, when you hear Genesis, you're like, oh man, creation. What are they going to say? Like, there's a handful of you that care about that. And so I want to I talk about that for a moment. But I don't want to talk about that in a way that would actually pull us away from the main thrust and the main point of what God's intending to speak to us through Genesis 1, because what God's intending to do in us is powerful. And if we start asking tertiary questions that Genesis 1 wasn't designed to answer, it's going to actually lead us away from the main point. And so what I want to say for those that have the question about kind of what's, what about Genesis 1 and science? What about Genesis 1 and creation? I'm not going to satisfy you today. Like, if that's your driving question, you're not going to get all the answers. But I'm going to share, there's a handful of positions that people who, like me, believe in the authority of God's Word, the inerrancy of God's Word, the infallibility of God's Word, that this is true and perfect in all of its truth claims, and we're called to submit to it in all of life. Within that group of people that believe in the authority of God's Word, there are a number of different perspectives about what the relationship is between Genesis 1 and the way we're thinking about science. And so there's a handful of positions that we think are all tenable and possible positions from Genesis 1. And we're not going to take a position because actually I don't think Genesis 1 is primarily answering those questions. But for the sake of those with the question, first, one of the, one of the views that people have is that Genesis 1 is presenting an earth that is relatively young, like somewhere like 6,000, 15,000, 6,000 to 15,000 years old. And that creation was brought into being by God's word in six 24-hour days. And that the kind of whatever appearance of the earth that scientists say, like this scientist, like whether it's a geologist or a biologist or a physicist or a particle physicist or an astronomer, whatever appearance of age is something that God somehow designed and somehow it kind of answers those questions. Something about God's ability to design the earth, he can make it so it seem old. That's, that's a view. That's a, a common view. Some people hold it. And that's like, Maybe. Uh, maybe that's what happened. Maybe that's exactly the way it happened. There's nothing about God that would make that impossible for him to do. We believe that God created everything, that he created everything by his word. It's possible he did it exactly like that. People who hold that view are holding that view because they love the Bible and they believe that God's totally powerful and those are good things that we should all share. Um, I don't think that Genesis 1 requires that interpretation for a faithful Christian. There are other Christians who would look at it and have a theory that they'd call, some people call, the gap theory. Now the gap theory is that Genesis 1, 1 and 2, which says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That happened. He created. And then God said, let there be light. And there's some indeterminate amount of time that passed between the creation of the geology and the kind of ordering and the filling and the abundance that happens in the next Six days of creation. That's the gap theory. So the, old, the earth geologically could be super old, but it still could be 24-hour days in which God created the heavens and the earth. That's also possible. 
That might be the case. I think the text allows for that. It's hard to tell what's going on between Genesis 1, 1, and 2. There are different opinions about it. It's not incredibly clear. Another theory is what people call the day-age theory, that the day, the six days of creation, don't represent kind of precisely 24-hour days. They represent seasons of time. The word day, the word yom in Hebrew, can mean that at times. It can mean seasons of time. It can mean scopes of time. And so even at the end of the creation, it's going to say, in the day that God created the heavens and the earth. And so there are people who would say these days can represent thousands, millions of years, potentially, and that God creating the earth happened over a process. It wasn't necessarily a millisecond or two minutes or six minutes. It could have been six million years. People who love the Bible believe that. It's possible. There's another view, the last view I'll mention, something called the framework view or the framework theory, and that's that Genesis, this sort of literary framework of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2, which maps out creation in these six days with God resting on the seventh day, was framed as as an attempt to actually lift up the authority of God and the design of God as a polemic against the prevailing worldviews, the, the prevailing cosmologies of the people around that day and age, and such that Genesis 1 would have been this incredible like declaration of God's power and it's framed in a way that the numbers don't necessarily correlate to a scientific observable reality. It's framed to help you understand something about the perfection of God's design and of his glory and his authority. It's possible. There are a lot of things happening with the genre of Genesis 1 that makes that like possible. Now some of you are like, wait, what? You don't believe the Bible? Like, no, we, we love it. I um, totally love the Bible. Um, some of you are like, wait, you're going to give credence to people that think the earth is like six or seven or 12,000 years old? I'm not a scientist. I, I don't know. You know, um, these are possible. And within the people of God, it's okay for there to be different opinions about that. But, but the problem is when we start asking tertiary questions, because what I think is clear is Genesis 1 was not written to answer all of our scientific questions about the age of the earth or the time it took to create the earth. It was not written for that purpose. And so to start spending our time focusing on those things instead of focusing on what the purpose of Genesis 1 is, is to miss the point entirely, and so we're not going to do it any longer. You can ask those questions, and they're fine. It's like, if I told my kids, kids, great news. Next week, we are going to Disney World. We are going to fly to Disney World. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Southwest or Frontier? Um, and, And is it nonstop or direct flight? It's like... Disney World, you know, like the main thing, you know. Um, Those questions matter. I'm not saying you can't ask those questions. Um, It's not the point. So what's the point? Uh, The point of Genesis 1 is not to make a scientific claim about the age of the earth or the amount of time it took to create the world. It is to say that God created the heavens and the earth. God did it. And he did it by his word. And he did it by his power. It is God and it is God alone. And so what we're going to look at in Genesis 1 is just three brief observations about what we see about the God who created the heavens and the earth. And we want these truths not just to frame our minds, but to actually be things that lead us to understand the significant life-altering implications of his authority, his glory, and his goodness. So here's the first observation. One, God is the sovereign creator of everything. God 
is the sovereign creator of everything. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light and saw that it was good and He separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. And so the Genesis narrative will continue. And God said, let there be. Let there be. This phrase, let there be, is this kingly decree. That Genesis 1 is picturing God as a sovereign creator king that just speaks decrees and everything obeys. Like everything, when he speaks light, light breaks into the darkness. When he speaks that they separate, they separate. When he speaks the divide of the waters and he speaks the land to emerge and he speaks animals into existence and he speaks humanity, he decrees as this sovereign king who has all authority over everything and everything obeys. It is astounding, this picture of God in Genesis 1 as the sovereign creator king. Genesis 1 absolutely decimates a materialistic worldview. That everything we can observe has some sort of natural cause outside of the supernatural power of God. We should observe, we should do science, but what you're observing as you do scientific inquiry is God's creation. And it's spectacular. What I think is crazy about the way that this is kind of penned and set up is if you were to understand what the prevailing worldview was in the day of Genesis 1, this would be like jaw-dropping to you. It's written in sort of like the mid-2nd century, 2nd millennia B.C., in the mid-2nd millennia B.C., to the people of God in the wilderness as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And in that day and age, the prevailing worldview would have been the worldview of the Mesopotamians. And the Mesopotamians, capital city Babylon, the Mesopotamians had a worldview that was shaped by their own understanding of the history of the earth. And here's how their story went. You have a couple different gods. Where they came from, I'm not sure. You have Tiamat, you have Apsu. Tiamat, the goddess of the sea. Apsu, the god of fresh water. And they have some sort of relationship. And there's chaos in the deep. And it's crazy. And they create all these kind of like less significant gods that kind of swarm around in the waters and like they're little kid gods and they're just kind of like annoying little kid gods like so much so that Apsu's like, can we destroy the kids? You know, like, please. And um, some of you are like, what was his name again? You know, <laughs> it was bad. It was so bad. Um, so there's this chaos and it's crazy. It's chaotic and not good, right? And, and Tiamat, mother goddess, wants to protect the kids and Apsu wants to destroy the kids. And, and so there's this like, warfare that happened. She's warning these gods, Ea, who eventually destroys Apsu. And, and out of this sort of like chaos, eventually one of these gods emerges named Marduk. Now Marduk becomes the most powerful god. He's the god of like wind, storm, dust. And these minor gods eventually commission and empower Marduk to attack Tiamat. And Marduk does. And Marduk battles Tiamat with his winds, and with his winds he destroys her, and then he fillets Tiamat the goddess of the sea. And he takes the waters and he separates the waters, the waters below and the waters above. And he takes those waters above and he creates a place so that their story would be, what's the stars? Where are the stars coming from? That's the the drops of blood from 
Tiamat's top fillet. And, and so humans then are created by Marduk to do the work of the gods as their slaves. Saying the gods don't want to keep doing work, and so we're going to create humans to do the work so that we don't have to do the work, and they're going to be slaves for us, and they're going to sacrifice to us, and if, they, if they're good to us, and if they honor us, we'll do good stuff for them, and if they're bad to us, we'll do bad stuff to them, and this is the sort of prevailing worldview. And into that dark, chaotic story comes this different narrative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness hovered over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. How many gods in that worldview? One. Is he contested? No. Is anything opposed his reign? Nothing. Is it warfare and conflict and combat? No, it is a sovereign king who has all authority over everything. And that matters for you today. You see, Marduk is gone. Like, nobody worships him much anymore. Baal, gone. Asherah, gone, right? Poseidon, gone. Zeus, like, not many people are worshiping these gods anymore. So what is it for you? Because this narrative still attacks the prevailing worldview in our day, which is that we're not accountable to anybody. I am my own God, the master of my own domain, the captain of my own ship, the author of my own future, the ruler of my own destiny. I have authority over my life, my decisions, my future, my body, my thoughts, my relationships, my vocation. It's me. I'm the God of my life. And Genesis 1 says, no, you are not. There is one God, the creator king, and he is sovereign over everything. And as the creator, he has authority over your life. And he exercises his authority with wisdom and with beauty and with splendor. But we are prone to push him out. Aldous Huxley, um, many of you know him, he wrote A Brave New World, A Brave New World. He's an Englishman who lived in L.A. in the sort of like 1930s to 1970s. He wrote A Brave New World, which is this sort of dystopian vision of where the world's going to go. And it's dark and it's chaotic. There's no morals, no kind of moral moorings. And it's just insane Incredibly like amazing literature, an insane vision of the world. And uh, he wrote another book called Ends and Means, and here's what he said about his own worldview. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have, any, to have a meaning, and consequently, I assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. Liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning they insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. He says we constructed a worldview that says there's no maker, there's no God, 
Therefore, there's no meaning. Therefore, I have authority over my own life. And I can do whatever I want, with whomever I want, however I want. And Genesis 1 says, whether you think that's true or not, that is not the case. There's a creator. And he is a king. And he has authority over our lives. And that means something for you today. It means something about the way you live, about the way you work, about the way you love, about the way you forgive, about the way you relate, about the way you engage in creation. It, it, it means something for you today. Who is the Lord of your heart? Who's at the wheel? Your friends, your parents, the expectations of society? Around the board table of your decision-making process, where's God? Voices that are calling you, your own sense of liberation and freedom. God reigns, and we're called to submit to his authority because he's good. The second truth presented in Genesis 1 is that God created the world to display his glory. He created the world to display his glory. And the way it's framed is this beautiful artistry, kind of compared to all the other kind of ancient creation myths and all the other ancient kind of literature we have. Like nothing compares to Genesis 1 and its beauty, its form, its artistry, the way it's balanced. It's an incredible picture. As God creates in six days and rests in the seventh, the way it's framed is that in the first three days, God's going to create spaces. He's going to use his word to create things and divide things and create spaces. Then in day four, five, and six, he's going to start filling those spaces with occupants and rulers. So in day one, by his word, he, he declares that there be light, and that light creates this experience of day and night. And day two, by his word, he takes these waters that are covering the earth and he separates them so there's sea below and there's sky above and this kind of space, this expanse, it is the heavens or the sky. And day three, by his word, he's going to take that sea below and he's going to part it and separate it. And he's going to bring land out and he's going to create space on this earth. And then, and then he's going to transition and start filling those spaces. So in day four, he's going to start populating the day and the night with these heavenly luminaries like the sun and the moon and the stars. And he's going to populate the world such that with those skies that display something of his radiance, something of his glory, something of his beauty. And then in the next day, day five, he's going to start populating the earth, or sorry, the sea and the sky with fish and animals that will swarm in the sea and birds with wings that will swarm in the sky. And then on day six, he's going to start populating the land with animals. And then at the culmination of his creation work, he's going to put human beings to represent his kingship, to represent him as a ruler of the earth, to exercise good, gracious, just, and righteous dominion over the earth that he's created. And then on day seven, he rests. It doesn't just like, man, if anybody ever deserved a weekend, tell you what, God did, you know? Um, it's not like merely that kind of rest. So he's taking up his home to dwell among his people in this beautiful garden temple that he's made, to live among them, to be their God, and that he would be their people. It is glorious picture. And in this picture, God's hope is that you would see his wisdom, his glory, his beauty, his grace, that he is the God who spoke it all into being, and he is the God who is even now continuing to uphold the universe by his power. Here's what Paul says in Colossians. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The author of Hebrews says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That right now, this world exists. You exist by the spoken word and power of God. And it's incredible. Like, it's incredible to think right now. Like, right now, the amount of things that are happening that God designed and is sustaining right now is incredible. Like, consider this reality. You're going to, right now, you're taking in breaths, right? You're breathing in. And what's coming in is you're breathing in oxygen. It's going to go into your lungs, and it's going to fill your lungs, and it's going to go into your blood, and your blood's going to use it to give you energy to keep sitting up and stay awake for a little while longer. If that stopped happening, you'd start drifting to sleep, and then, and then further if it kept not happening. But it's happening every moment. You're sustaining your body, and then your body's using that up, and it's going to pump it back out as this poisonous gas that we call carbon dioxide, right? So like filling it and kind of all crazy stuff's happening. That poisonous gas, this is insane. The poisonous gas, trees are going to be like, we love that poisonous gas, you know? (laughs) And so trees are like, man, give me the poisonous gas. I'm going to stick my straws in the ground and suck up water. And I'm going to grab some of these photons from the sun and kind of do some work in my leaves and just like use it to grow and like flourish. And then I'm going to pump oxygen back out to you folks. And then we're going to be like, sweet. And so then we breathe it in and we grow and we get bigger and then we go to the tree and we chop it down and you're you're sitting on it. Like you're sitting (laughs) on the tree right now that gave you all that oxygen, right? And then we're going to give you bulletins. We're going to print out a ton of bulletins and then we're going to print Bibles and we're like, thank you trees for the oxygen and for the Bible and for the bulletin. Appreciate you, right? Like this is happening, all around, Nate Wilson, who was here a couple years ago for one of our symposiums, he was talking about how, like, the world right now is, like, sucking you to your seat. Like, it's, like, sucking you to your seat. We're, like, spinning this, like, ridiculous pace, both kind of, like, rotating and revolving around the star that's right over there, like, just, like, shooting around it. And, like, that reality somehow is, like, just sucking us to the earth. And so all day you're, like, using your strength to, like, keep yourself from falling into the earth by, by the end of the day, you're, like, so tired from doing that that you have to, like, lay down and just get attached to the earth for, like, eight hours while your body recuperates enough to get back up. Like, this is happening. It's crazy. It's crazy. And then there's love. And there's friendship. And there's culture. And there's food. Like, strawberry. We had smoothies last night. It's, like, all just things we just, like, pulled from the creation and put in a blender. And, like, It's amazing. You know, like, it's like God created this place to show you his glory, his beauty. And he creates it with order and abundance. He fills the emptiness with abundance, and he takes the chaos, and he brings order. And when his word reigns, this order and this abundance bring flourishing and goodness. It's incredible. And the implication there is that we ought to be a people that both honor him Acknowledge him and give thanks to him. Romans 1 says one of the chief sins of humanity is that we didn't acknowledge God, even though we could see his beauty and glory everywhere, nor did we give thanks to him. To be a people that just like enjoy this world, like look at the glory of God all around you. Like take a breath and consider the incredible things that just happened. That God designed. It's astounding. 
what God has done. May we be a people that are full of wonder as we walk through this world and look at the glories around us. It's spectacular. The last implication or the last truth from Genesis 1 that we'll draw out today is that God's creation is very good. There's this rhythm that happens that's really, really neat to see it kind of pan out through Genesis 1. It's going to be, and God said, let there be, and it was so, like it happened, and then God looks at it, he saw what he made, and he says over it, he gives it this, he assigns it a value, he says it's good. And then he says something else, God said, let there be, and then there was, it was so, and, and then he looked at it and he saw it, he's like, that's good. And he does that for six days. And by the end, he looks at everything he made and he says, it's really good. Like this creation is really, really good. And what we learn from that is that when everything and everyone submits to the word of the king, it's really good. When everything and everyone submits to the authority and the word of this king, it's really, really good. But we haven't all done that, have we? I haven't. I find my own ways to, to run away from him, to distrust his word, and to turn from him. And I don't acknowledge him, and I don't give him thanks, and I don't want him to be the, the Lord of my life, and so I want to make my own decisions. I want to navigate without him. And we'll get into where that began in a few weeks. But for now, just to acknowledge, like we don't always submit to the word of this good king. Which is why it's pretty incredible what God did. This word that he is using to speak creation into being. This word isn't some impersonal force. The word is a person and he has a name. It's Jesus. And John is going to introduce us to Jesus in this stunning way in the beginning of his gospel where he says this. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This God who spoke our world into being, who's giving you life and sustaining you now, even in our rebellion against his word, he is a God of grace. He is a God of love. He is a God of faithfulness and mercy. And in his love, he did not leave us alone. But he said once again, let there be light. And Jesus came into this world bringing light into the darkness and bringing forgiveness and grace and healing and restoration and reconciling rebellious, errant human beings like you and I to our maker, our God, our Father in heaven and giving us life in him, joy in him, hope in him. Above all, Genesis is about God. And this God is worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise, worthy of our love. He is glorious and good in all that he does. May we be a people who submit to his reign, who enjoy his world and honor him and give thanks to him and trust his word as we reflect him in the world that he's made. Let's pray. God, we um, acknowledge right now that our hearts that are kind of just prone to scatter in a ton of places. And even now, Spirit of God, who, who spoke this world into being, I want to ask right now that you would calm hearts. You calm hearts right now. As the chaos of life 
starts warring at our mind, thinking about what's next. Spirit of God, speak peace now. And we want to ask God that you would, um, that you would work right now. There are people who, who walked in here maybe, maybe thinking about these things in their head but not believing them in their heart, or maybe people that have even in their head just said, this is crazy. Spirit of God, would you speak light into those places now? Um, would you bring them to yourself? Um, would you draw them to yourself with your power that the God who said let light shine in darkness would shine on hearts to give people the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus? And that people would bow and say, you're my maker. I want to know you. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. And so, Spirit, would you work? And for those who, who are your children, who have known you, who trust you, who are wandering around questions of authority or, or doubting your goodness or, or, or having a hard time seeing anything beautiful in this world that you've made, God, would you right now just renew them, encourage them? Like, I see you, son. I see you, daughter. I love you. And I love you. In your transcendent glory, would you also just draw near to them? For those who feel guilt, um, would you remind them of your grace, of your love, of your goodness? So work in power right now to transform the way we engage and the way we think about you and ourselves and the world around us for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.